Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we read verses 11 through 15. Hear now the word of God. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask our God to make us receptive to what he says to us. Lord Jesus, would you help us today to be open to hearing your word clearly? Help us to discern what your word says and help us to believe even those things that are challenging for us. Help us to love it and help us to see your will as lovely. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes you, sometimes you get to a passage that as a pastor you really love. You love the passage itself. And then the thought of preaching, it comes to you, and, and you think, this, this isn't very popular in our own day. Uh, every word of my reading this morning feels countercultural, doesn't it? Um, and yet it, it comes from God. It doesn't come, come from man's imagination, you know. Uh, I, I love to preach this text. I love to read this text because it is so clear. It is so clear, and it is so practical, And it is helpful to the church, what God has to say here. Uh, I think that it doesn't take any special skill to see what this text says. You don't have to know Greek to be able to know what this text says. You don't have to have been to seminary to understand what Paul is is saying. The meaning of the text is there. It is obvious, and and it's very blatant. It's it's really hard to disguise uh, what this actually says. Um, That on the one hand, makes me love the text. That, on the one hand, gives me a great desire to preach this text. But I also have to confess to you that there is some guttural level where it is hard to preach a passage like this because I know the day we live in. I know the culture we live in. I know the environment we live in. Um, We live in a time when what Paul says here is not taken well. Um, It's not unusual at all to find churches in America where women serve as pastors. And and in fact, even in my wife's family history, there there were women pastors. Her great-grandmother Cheeseman was a pastor to the Navajo Indians. I have one funny story about her. When I first asked Erin to marry me, uh, she had a wedding ring, as one does. And we went to go and see her great-grandmother Cheeseman uh, in the nursing home where she was living. And she saw Aaron, and she looked, and she looked at Aaron's ring. Sorry, wrong hand. Yeah, right hand. The engagement goes on this hand, right? Then it moves over here. She looked at her hand, and then great-grandma Cheeseman looked up at me. And then she looked at her hand, and then she looked over at me, and she goes, You're broke. (laughs) So great-grandmother Cheeseman, quite a character, very funny lady. Uh, She was a missionary to the Navajo Indians, 
And how do we think about great grandma Cheeseman and her service to the church? You know, how should we think about women in the ministry? <clears throat> this passage speaks to that, but what it says clashes against the spirit of our own age. It clashes against some of our own instincts about the equality of men and women. And so for that reason, I come to this passage with some trepidation, but also I come with confidence. I come with confident hope because I think this passage is really clear. I think it is quite plain. The problem that we have is not with the texts, with what we think are the implications of the text. And so because the argument Paul makes, I think is very clear, uh, I'm persuaded there's nowhere to go but to the text and then show you that what Paul says here is important and, and hopefully persuade you that, that actually what he says here is very beautiful. It's something to delight in. It's something for us to appreciate. Um, if you remember from two weeks ago, we discussed the fact that in chapter 2, Paul is, is warning Timothy about these very hot-button issues, the sort of issues that can lead to division in the church if they are not addressed. And one of the ways that Paul is working to avoid that exact problem. He's working to avoid division in the church is by running headlong into the issue of women in the church and what God's design does and does not include for them. Because Paul is doing this because if we get those things wrong, the division is going to spread. The division is going to increase. It's not going to be good for the church. And so all of this serves this important purpose, making sure that the church does not become a hotbed of division and trouble. And so, so if we do the things that Paul is talking about in chapter 2, what we're going to find is this. God is preemptively laying the groundwork. He is preemptively doing heart work within the church that will protect us from different sources of division. And by the way, think about this. this. This shows how differently God thinks than we think. Because God thinks of division and, 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 and the way that we think of division are, are very much at odds at times. Because I think so often we believe this. We think this is a difficult issue. We'd better not talk about it. Right? Anytime there's a hot button issue, even, though, even anytime that there's something that's really hard, we think, well, I'm going to steer away from that. And maybe that's just me as the person that gets up here and preaches, right? I think, oh, how do we avoid that difficult issue? Um, and then, you know, Paul gets to this and he says, you know, uh, look, we should talk about women in the ministry. And I think our impulse is to say, well, how about if we don't? <laughs> And, and Paul's thinking is, is actually something like this. He's thinking, Timothy, if you are not well instructed on the issue of the place of women in the church, you're going to see a lot of trouble and you're going to see a lot of division. And in the long term, by not addressing this, you're going to see worse division. You're going to see worse trouble in the church. And so Paul is saying, let me give you some instruction that will protect the church from a whole bunch of heartache. That's what Paul does. So instead of addressing the problem by ignoring the problem, he says, let's address it by addressing it. And so this thing that we sort of reflexively shrink back from is actually the thing that Paul says, if you focus more on it, it will be healthier than if you focus less on it. And that's very counterintuitive to us. Um, you know, we live in the age where everybody says, you know, in polite company, you don't discuss religion and politics, right? That's how we learn to sort of survive around other people who think differently than us. And Paul says, here's what you do. 
You grow unity in the church by facing hard issues head on. If God has something clear to say about it, you don't skirt it, you don't avoid it, you don't run from it, you, you go straight to it and you seize hold of it. And if you don't see something lovely there, then you ask God to help you see what's lovely there. And so let's do that today, right? Paul is addressing the boundaries of what women can or should do in the church. And so I want to organize uh, Paul's thoughts here under three points. First is submissive assignment. The second is sweeping argument. And then the third is spiritual aspiration. Submissive assignment, sweeping argument, spiritual aspiration. Those are the three points this morning. One of the things I really want to impress upon you is that it is our duty to listen to what God says and to believe what God says, whether we like it instinctively or not. And then the other reality, though, is that we should actually go further and we should ask this deeper question assessing our own hearts. Why are our instincts so different from what God says? Um, if, you know, if we, if we balk at the idea that Paul is saying women can't be elders or, or pastors or deacons in the church, why is it that we balk at that? Why is it that we have such an issue with it? And so the question we should be asking is about ourselves, not about God. So we don't ask God, God, why are you like that? Why did you design us that way? Why did you make us that way? Instead, we should be asking the question, Lord, what is wrong with me that I don't love what you love? What is wrong with me that, that, that I want to be different than what you say I'm supposed to be like, right? And so if God says this, why is it? Why is it that I almost have this impulse to correct God? God, I know better than you. Um, and so let's come to this passage with humility. Let's ask God to show us the truth. And then let's ask him to help us see what's good and lovely about that truth. Um, first, let's go, let's go right into verse 11. We have submissive assignment. You see this in verse 11 and 12. Paul says it. Uh, I'm going to read him word for word, and then I'll say a few things about it. He says, let a woman... Learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So we're not going to go to the reason for the arguments. He's going to give an argument for this. At, at, at first, what is he doing? He's presenting us with his conclusion. He's presenting us with the summary of what his teaching is. And so what Paul says here is very direct, very straightforward. Uh, in service to this larger argument, Timothy needs to instruct the church well so that division and disunity don't become an issue. And so Paul makes this statement, and in it, he excludes women from any position in the church where she has authority over a man. Um, I want to pick apart some of the wording here just a little bit. He puts this word or between teach and exercise authority um, for Paul. To teach is forbidden, as is exercising authority. So for him, there are these two things to be avoided. Um, it's actually helpful that he puts this conjunction in between here because he's excluding both. He's excluding both. You know, there might be somebody who says, ah, it says teach and exercise authority. So if you can teach without exercising authority, that's okay. Or maybe someone can exercise authority but not teach. See, they could do one or the other. You get this, somebody that might be tempted to, to split hairs and maybe say, well, I can teach. That doesn't mean I'm exercising authority. I'm just teaching. Or they could say, well, maybe I can't preach, but I could still be an elder in the church. Or maybe I can still be a ruling elder. I just, I'm just not allowed to teach. 
And, and Paul says, no, actually, the, the, the woman is not by design meant to do either of these things. He's excluding both. Um, Tom Schreiner uh, has a uh, commentary on this passage. And one of the things he says is that when Paul talks about teaching, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the public transmission of authoritative material. So he's not talking about if one of the women in the church comes up and gives an announcement uh, or talks about an upcoming activity. That is not what he's forbidding here. Um, This is really the preaching of the word that he's talking about. This is the reading, the preaching, the declaration of the word of God. So when someone opens the word of God in public worship and and reads it aloud for everyone else to receive from God, um, whether they open it and explain its meaning, um, they are exercising an authority that is delegated from God and and is always under God's command. Paul recognizes no officer in the church has authority in in himself. Uh, I have no authority in myself. Sometimes I like to pause and actually explain the meaning of the gown. Now, I've heard I've been told that I'm supposed to call it a robe because a gown sounds like something a woman wears. But when you go on the website to order a Geneva gown, they're called Geneva gowns. So that's what this is. And the the purpose of the Geneva gown is not to wear a religious-looking outfit. It's actually a judge's uniform. Uh, This is actually the uniform of somebody who opens and interprets a law that is handed to him. Uh, That's actually the purpose of the robe, if you want to call it a robe. Uh, The purpose of the robe is to say... Uh, I have no authority in myself. I am not a priest. Uh, I'm not God. I don't stand in God's place. We don't have priests in the church. Jesus is the priest of his church. And so why do I wear the gown then? Because I'm opening, explaining a law that God has given to us. All I am is an, an interpreter. So everything that I do as a minister up here is, is uh, delegated authority. It's just me saying this is what God says to you. So in myself, I have no authority. It's God's authority. And so whenever we open and read God's word in public, there is something authoritative about that when we do that in public worship. And by God's design, what Paul is saying is that it is men whom that delegated authority is limited to when it comes to church. So first, let's Let's focus on the, on the command, then let's, let's see his argument. We're going to see his argument in the next point. Um, what he doesn't say is that a woman can't teach other women or teach children, uh, but he certainly says a woman can't teach or exercise authority over a man, which would reasonably preclude the, the public reading and teaching of Scripture and worship where men and women are both present as a combined group. Um, He also doesn't say that men and women can't spend time with other men and women and offer them instruction. Uh, One of the interesting moments in the book of Acts is Apollos. If you notice that moment where Apollos uh, uh, meets with Priscilla and Aquila, one of the things they notice is this guy is missing some very important information. And so what happens? Apollos goes home with Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife, and he sits with them, and together this husband and wife instruct him. And they talk to him, and they teach him, and they explain to him more fully what the gospel is. Because he knows John's baptism, but he hasn't didn't know about the rest of the New Testament story yet, and the coming and the resurrection of Jesus and so on. And so you have this husband and wife who are giving instruction to him. And so what I want you to see for now is that while 
he has that negative statement here, I do not permit. He also pairs it with this positive statement, and that is this. The positive statement is, so women aren't meant to teach in public worship. What are they meant to do? He says they should learn. And I know that that might maybe sounds like second class, but I want you to also remember exactly the time period they're living in. This would have been revolutionary. This would have been revolutionary for Paul to say that women should learn it all. Um, Before Christianity, it's really not an exaggeration to say that the Jews did not put a value on instruction for women. And, And Paul is saying that women should learn the same things that the men are learning. They should be together. They should receive the same instruction. Um, they should all be taught. This would have been a major revolutionary thing for Paul to say that women should learn. Paul's also saying how they should learn. He says they should learn quietly and with submissiveness. I don't think he's saying that women should not speak when they're in the church building. Uh, he is not saying that their attitude and uh, he's not saying that they should be completely silent. He's saying their attitude in the church should be one of receptivity and, and eagerness to learn. Not a, a domineering attitude, not a competitive attitude, uh, especially not an attitude that jockeys for attention. Uh, does that mean that a woman shouldn't vocalize during the service? Does that mean a woman shouldn't sing or say amen or participate in responsive reading? No, that's not what Paul is addressing. None of those things are teaching or exercising authority. Um, does it mean that in Paul's mind, women are second-class citizens of the kingdom of God? No. No, I, I'm really... I'm insistent on that, right? Just because God designs the offices of the church to be exclusive to some, qual- some qualified men does not mean in any sense that men are better or more important. Um, it, is very, it, it, is, it is an importance in function. It is not an importance of value. If we think about the office, uh, if, if you think at all that someone being... Uh, able to hold office, if you think that adds value to them as a person, then you have a few problems. One is you get that, that is a demonstration that you have a problematic view of human nature, and it shows that you have a problematic view of the offices of the church. So I, I would suggest that if you think saying that a woman cannot be an officer of the church means that women are devalued, I think that that actually, you need to have a a higher image, a view of the image of God. Um, Jesus impresses over and over again upon the apostles as they prepare to lead the church that they are lowly and ultimately unimportant. You know, one, one remembers John Owen saying near the end of his life that all I am is a poor under rower in the church of God. All I did was serve where I was supposed to serve. The reality is... Being able, being qualified to be an officer in the church does not add one incy, wincy, teeny, tiny bit of value to someone as a human being. You are not more valuable because you're qualified to be a church officer. Not even in the slightest. I'm not even going to add a but at the end of that statement. There's just no more value to a human being simply because they get to be a church officer or because they don't get to be a church officer. What what does Matthew say in Matthew 20, 26? He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. What does Jesus do? He gets down on his feet and he washes the feet of the disciples. He's giving them a model of servanthood. He doesn't regard himself as a domineering king over them, even though he actually is. 
He's showing them what should you be like. And he says, you should be a servant. You are here to serve. You are here to be lowly. You are not here in any sense to be better, superior, or more important than somebody else. You are here to serve. So what did Jesus do? He brought himself low and he looks at his disciples. And if there's one thing he can get across to them, it's that I want you to have that attitude about yourself. You are a lowly, you might even say under rower. And so if you think it makes someone better than you because they are eligible to be an elder, then you don't understand what an elder is. Please have a healthy view of church leadership. We're, we're servants. We're not lords or kings. Um, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king of his church. Everybody else is just doing what the king says. Um, officers have delegated authority. It's ministerial. It's declarative. But it doesn't rest in them in themselves because of who they are and certainly not because of their gender. Um, it does not give a woman more value. If God was to open the office of elder to her Sometimes it feels like people believe that. The only way that I can have value as a woman is if I can be an elder in the church. She doesn't have more value. She already has value because she's born as a daughter of the king, uh, as a woman made in God's image. Um, In fact, let me say something directly to the women of the church. Women, you may have different roles, but you do not have different value. Um, we are all image bearers of the king. We are all equal in value. Um, even if Paul was to say that women could serve as elders or pastors here, it would not add any value to you as a woman. You already possess full value because you're made in the image of God. Full stop. What Paul is doing is this. Paul is saying that while we're all equal In the sight of God, we each have different roles by God's design. Uh, In the home, Paul teaches male headship, and he says the same thing about the church. The church is a reflection of what is true in the home. So just as men by design are considered the head of the wife, I'm using Paul's own language from his other letters. If you flip that, if you disorder it, then the home is going to experience exactly what Paul is trying to avoid. The home is going to experience strife and division. And so also, the office of elder in the church is only open to men. And what happens is this, and I think you've seen it time and time again, in churches that flip that, they open themselves to major strife and division and disunity. But that still leaves us with this gaping question, why? Why? What is the rationale for Paul? Is is it possible, maybe Paul... Maybe Paul is basing his reasoning for this on something that's fleeting, something that's passing, something that's cultural, something that perhaps in the last 2,000 years of church history could have changed. Maybe Paul hinged it on something that's fleeting, something that doesn't last. Um, maybe, Maybe Paul thinks that women aren't intelligent. And, and if, he, if it could be proven that women are now as intelligent as men, then they could lead the church. Is that what Paul bases it on? Well, let's look and ask the question. What does Paul base his reasoning on? Is it something that's just cultural that could change over the course of two millennia? Or is it something cultural, something that goes back perhaps before Paul? Something deeper. So to make make his case, Paul sets forth our second point, which is a sweeping argument. You look in verses 13 and 14, you can see how Paul 
makes his, makes his case for what he has just said. In verses 13 and 14, he says, for, remember, for means there's an argument here. He's given the assertion, women shouldn't exercise authority. And now he's going to give the argument for that, which leads to the conclusion that women ought not to be officers in the church. His argument is in verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's one argument. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, uh, in our culture today, this is, this is very inflammatory, right? Uh, this, is a, this is an offensive thing to say. One of the, the very common objections to what Paul says here is that Paul has been setting forth a culturally relative position. Um, the argument goes something like this. Here's the argument that oftentimes people make if they want to cope with this passage. He says, Paul, the, the argument goes like this. Paul was a man of his own day. And in Paul's day, women were less educated, less capable, and society just was not ready for a church with women in authority. And then the argument goes something like this. Today, though, we are ready for women to do what they could not do back then. But let's look at the argument that Paul actually makes in these two verses, in verses 13 and 14. Does Paul make the argument that women are inferior to men? Does he make the argument that women just wouldn't be good leaders, that he just knows women wouldn't do a good job? Is that what, he, is that what he's arguing? No. Does he say that, that, that the women in his own day weren't intelligent enough? Is that his argument? No, he doesn't make that argument either. Um, if he did make that argument, then it would not be difficult for us to say, thankfully, times have changed. It would be very easy. Um, women have upped their game now. <laughs> Women aren't excluded from office anymore uh, because the reasons Paul gave don't apply anymore. All the foundational reasons he gives, well, maybe they're not true anymore. And so women can now be church officers. But look, that's actually not his argument. Let's follow, follow the argument together. Why does Paul not permit a woman to exercise authority or teach over a man? It is not a cultural argument that he makes. He makes an anthropological argument. Anthropology is the study of human beings. It's, it's about our doctrine of people. Uh, anthropos is the word for, for man or human beings. And so his argument is related in, is, is rooted in anthropology, what we are like as people. Um, it has not anything to do with culture. It's rooted in his doctrine of mankind, which transcends culture. Um, the two argument he makes is first... His argument is Adam was created first. That's his first argument. And so Adam had creational priority. He was made before the woman. And Paul extrapolates something from that. He infers something from that. He infers that there's a priority of leadership for Adam. And he finds a pattern there that is meant to continue. It's not meant to just drop off. It, it, it basically is perpetual. And so this is an argument that even before the fall, Right? Even before Adam and Eve have sinned, God's design is for the man to be in a position of leadership. Not, not a position of superiority, but a position of leadership. His role is to lead this woman who's soon to come. So he is born, he is in the world, he is given creational priority. And Paul says we need to remember that as we're thinking of the reasons why church office is not open to women. 
The second argument here is that the woman was deceived first. So his argument here is that in some way, Eve and her descendants were culpable in a way that marked females. This doesn't mean that Adam wasn't ultimately responsible. If you read Genesis, Adam is the one who answers for what happened. Um, Adam is spoken of in in Romans chapter 5 as a sinner. So Paul is not saying that Adam didn't sin, but what he is saying is she sinned first. And and Paul says that it's still relevant that Eve listened to the serpent, that she still took the fruit, that she gave the fruit to her husband, Um, Andreas Kostenberger says it like this. I think he does a good job interpreting this. He says, The serpent tempted and deceived the woman, the woman who exerted leadership over the man, and both rebelled against God and transgressed his command. Negatively, Paul was concerned that people in the church avoid the scenario that had precipitated the fall where Satan deceived the woman. So he's pointing out you have this one moment where the, the, the woman actually does step forward into a leadership role. And that is the very first opportunity where she does what she does and it has terrible results is basically the argument that Paul makes. Now, again, notice this argument serves what Paul is doing. Paul's trying to protect the church. He, he's protecting the church by making sure that they embrace the roles of men and women. He says there is some safety and a protection from disunity in the church when men know what men are supposed to do and women know what women are supposed to do. And then Kostenberger says this, the fact that Paul is rooting his directive in the order of creation rather than providing a cultural rationale strongly suggests that verses 11 and 12 are permanently applicable. So it's, it's very hard to make a cultural argument here because neither of these th- two things are cultural. Neither of these two things change. They're rooted. They go all the way back to the creation of the world. That's how far back they go, which is not cultural. Um, it, it also means that no matter where the church exists, no matter the time when the church exists, this order for the church is true, whether, whether you live in England or America or Haiti or Afghanistan or China, it will always be true that the church should not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It is transcultural. It is transcendent. This is a reality of human beings because of the way that God made us and because of the way that we fell. None of those things are erased by culture. None of those, they all stay. They all remain. Another place you see this idea of women officers contradicted is in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you have the elders, and they're seeking out people to fill the office of the deacon. And you start to notice the way that they make their selections, the sort of qualifications that they look for. And one of the things that they say in Acts chapter 6 is they say, choose seven men from among you. So they... They already immediately, as they're finding their, the first, as far as we can tell, the first church officer election takes place in Acts 6, and the very first thing they do is look to the men. Find seven men among you. Um, Now, by the way, it isn't enough just to be a man. Just because you're a man and you have blood flowing through your body doesn't mean that you're qualified. Um, because uh, the, the text also talks about them needing to be spiritual and wise. There are other things besides simply being a man. Um, just being a man doesn't qualify someone to be an elder, but not being a man is enough to disqualify someone. 
So when Paul's listing the requirements for deacons, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, we're going to go there in two weeks. When he's listing the requirements of the deacons, he uses the masculine pronoun every time. Every time he's saying, these are men, these are men. Uh, I think it is a hard argument to twist or misunderstand. I really do. I think it's a lot of work to try to make this passage say something else. Um, one of the things I've noticed, at least in my own life, is even people who don't like Paul's conclusion oftentimes end up getting what he's saying. Uh, in my very first year of college, I was going to Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. I'm selling out the school. It's been like 20 years. Uh, but I was in my first semester of school, and I remember sitting in on, I won't say the teacher's name, I just don't feel like picking that hard on him, but I remember sitting in on this New Testament class, and one of the professors there believed in women pastors, and he started talking to the class to that effect, and I was new enough, I thought, well, he's, he's surely he's got something to teach me, I'm sure there's something here that I haven't seen before, uh, I'm a brand new Bible student. I had only been a believer for maybe three years. And, uh, and I, I asked him about this text. I said, there's a text that sounds like women can't be pastors. And I read the text out loud in class, and you just feel the room hating you. You just feel it, you know. <laughs> All I did was read Paul. And, and I will never forget what my, my professor said. It stuck with me. I, I tell the story all the time, but he basically said, well, I think that what Paul's doing here is he's giving his opinion, but I don't think it was authoritative. I mean, just think about the implications for that. Anytime I read Paul's letters and he says something that really grinds my gears, I can say that's not authoritative. Quite a way to use your Bible. Um, and I remember being struck by, and I remember even as I was sitting there, arrogant little brand new Christian as I was sitting there going, okay, so what you're saying is Paul is saying women shouldn't be pastors and you know it. Um, that was the thing that struck me. Um, his solution was in essence to say, I see what Paul is saying, but I find it distasteful. I'm going to pick, I'm going to choose which parts of Paul's writings I find compelling. Um, and, and for me, it was just this great confirmation. I had understood the text correctly. I wasn't confused. Yes, I might be a brand new Christian. Maybe I didn't know any Greek or anything like that, but I could tell what the text was saying. I, my first glance was right. Um, it says something that even those who don't like what Paul says here oftentimes admit that he says it. So the, the question is really not what he says or, or even why he says it. The question is, what will be our attitude when God speaks? When, when God speaks, are we going to submit to what he says? Um, God who knows us and knows what we need better than we do for ourselves? Or, or will we squirm away and, and try to find our own way to do things? That's the challenge for us. That's actually what's being set before us today, I think. Will we love and treasure what God says? Or will we find some way to squirm out of it? Now, does all this mean that women can't serve in any kind of way in the church? Does it mean that women should just be passive? They should just show up here as a part of the life of the church? Um, I want to just say, no. It does not mean that. There is more to the church than the two offices. <laughs> There's more to the church than being an elder or a deacon. Um, there are so many things in the church that, that women can do. I'm actually going to give you a list. It's probably not even an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you this list. I've cobbled it to go together over the course of a number of years because you do get asked an awful lot, oh, so you think that women shouldn't do things in the church. Listen to this list. Directors of women's and children's ministries, 
assistants in campus ministries, directors of VBS and other children's programs, leaders of women's small groups, counseling, serving as musicians, serving on school boards, hosting church groups, showing hospitality to visitors, supporting or serving adoption or foster care programs, editing or contributing to church newsletters or blogs, writing books or commentaries on scripture, leading Bible studies during the week, caring for the church property, mentoring other women, serving as heads of schools and special needs ministries. And I am sure there are things that are, are missing from this list. This list could be even longer. There are a lot of ways to serve the church besides being a church officer. So one of the things we need to do is we need to learn to love the roles that God has given to men and women in the home and to, to learn to love the roles that God has given to men and women in the church. Let's learn to love God's design and not to despise it or resist it. If we find ourselves reluctant to receive what God has to say, let's ask him to work on our hearts so that we receive it wholeheartedly and not just resentfully or through gritted teeth. Let's ask God, what's wrong with my heart that I don't love what you love, Lord? Now, third, I, I need to touch on something that might actually become a little bit of a distraction. I, um, you look at verse 15, and I just, I'll just take us right to this point, and, we'll, and I'll talk about it. Paul offers women a spiritual aspiration in verse 15. Um, <clears throat> I, in fact, I bet when I was reading it this morning, you're like, I really hope he talks about this because this is weird what Paul says here. If Peter's allowed in his letter to say that some of the things Paul says are confusing to people, then I think I'm allowed to say it too. So yeah, this is confusing what Paul does. So Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now look, the problem is not with Paul. The problem is with me and you. That is, we are the reason why we don't understand the text or we have problems with it. What Paul writes here is exactly what God wanted him to write. So the issue is with us as interpreters. The issue is not with God, and it's certainly not with his word. Nonetheless, it's still weird. So, so um, I almost didn't include this verse in the reading this morning because I thought if I include this, people are going to be confused, and then we're going to go off on a tangent, and we're going to end up very far away from the roles of men and women in the church. Um, Actually, though, I think that I was wrong. I think my gut instinct on that is wrong. I think it would actually be a disservice to try to handle this by itself. And I think it would really be wrong for me to just skip over verse 15 here. And so what I, I actually think is, is this. If you understand verse 15, then you understand the rest of the argument. You understand what Paul has been doing before. Um, now, my best friend is a Pauline scholar. He specialized in Greek linguistics. I asked him, he, he wrote his dissertation on Greek conjunctions, which if that doesn't sound nerdy, I don't know what is. And I asked him, I said, so help me with this verse. And he goes, he says, this is probably the toughest verse in all of the New Testament. Um, and then he said, since you're going to preach on this, he said, tell your church, I told you that this is the toughest verse in all of the New Testament. And so I thought, well, okay, what a way to set everybody's expectations really high. For, for a text like this. So how do we understand what is going on here? She will be saved through childbearing. What? She will be saved through childbearing. So let's, let's tear through the linguistic possibilities. Let's, let's, let's get rid of the, the weirdest one. Um, nobody that I know of teaches or believes that Paul is saying that having a child gets a woman saved. 
I haven't found, nor do I know of anybody who says that a woman having a baby means that her soul is saved um, or that that makes her a Christian. Um, Paul says, because why, why do we believe that that's not the case? Well, he adds this phrase, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So it's not having children that saves you because you still have to be a person of faith. That's what he's saying here. So in other words, whatever Paul means, he isn't saying that having a baby saves you, whether you trust in Jesus or not. Childbirth is not a free ticket to paradise. Um, for some people, that's good news. And for some people, that's bad news because you've had a few. Um, but that still leaves you scratching your head, right? What could Paul mean here? What does it mean to be saved through childbearing? Um, I'm actually going to mention the two most reasonable possibilities, and neither of them do I hate, but one I think makes more sense. So here's the first possible meaning. The first possible meaning is this. Women will be saved through faith in Christ by means of childbearing, but not their childbearing. So in other words, because a certain someone bore a certain child, salvation has come to women, right? Because in this view, what is it saying? This view of the passage says that because of the incarnation, we can be saved. Because this woman bore a child, because Mary bore the child Jesus, we will be saved through her childbearing, right? That's the argument. At least that's one way that this passage could be taken, that they are saved through Mary's childbearing. Because Mary had this baby, these women will know salvation. It's possible. Um, this interpretation would give us a, a reminder of the profound importance that although Eve did sin, Paul mentioned that, he sort of laid on, leaned onto it, didn't he? There's another woman, Mary, who bore the Savior of mankind. So there's this nice contrast going on, if this is what the text is saying, between Eve and Mary, right? He's talking, in other words, about the important role that a woman played in the Savior of the world coming. Uh, maybe Paul is, is contrasting Eve and Mary here, right? We're saved by the woman who was born, or by the child who was born of the woman. Um, I have to be honest, it's a compelling interpretation on its own. If you just took this verse and tried to uh, make sense of it apart from the context, I wouldn't hate this. This is, this is not a terrible understanding of the text. I think it linguistically is possible. Here's the reason why I don't think it's right. I think it doesn't serve the larger argument Paul is making. If you look at the larger uh, argument, what is Paul doing? Paul is addressing women in the church. Paul is concerned that, to prevent division and disruption. And he sees the roles of women and men as being a significant source of possible trouble. You guys are going to fight over who's supposed to do what in the church, aren't you? And, and so I, I think that while this interpretation is Jesus-centered, it's Christ-centered, it doesn't actually answer the problem that Paul is speaking to, right? It doesn't advance the purpose of maintaining unity in the church and, and preventing women from usurping the role of men in the church. Instead, it, it actually makes a good but totally irrelevant point to what he's been saying. So it helps you make sense of the statement that feels confusing, but it doesn't help you understand why the statement's there, if that makes sense. So Instead, I want to suggest another meaning that I think does account for the whole argument Paul's making, and it actually makes the argument that Paul's making. So the second possible meaning, the one that I prefer, I think it makes the most sense of all of this, is this. 
Women in general will be saved through faith in Christ, even as they are bearing children. I think that's what Paul's saying. And so in this view, Paul is, is pointing generally toward the God-given domestic structure of life, that, that women are, are protected from confusion or deception by embracing her role as being submissive to her husband. So as the woman is doing this at home and does this in the church, there is protection against disunity and trouble in the church. And so what he's saying is the, 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 the value of, or the, the, the role of the woman is generally summarized in this statement through childbearing. So he's making a general point that women have a role men cannot fulfill. Now, regardless of what Twitter, which is not real life, tells us, men cannot actually bear children. That's not even controversial. Men can't bear children. Now, when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was the movie Junior where Arnold Schwarzenegger had a baby. And that movie was hilarious. And I loved that movie. I probably watched it five times, where Arnold Schwarzenegger goes, I'm having a baby. And everyone's laughing, um, because back then that would have been a very strange thing indeed. Twitter tells us that men can bear children. Men can't bear children. So... Only women can bear children. That's actually why Paul's making this statement here. He goes, the only people you know who have had babies are women. And so Paul is telling us that what we need to do is embrace our God-given roles in the home. We need to embrace our God-given roles in the church. And when we do that, here's what happens. The unity and the peace that Paul is talking about here will come to fruit in the life of the church and in the life of the family. But if we reject that, if we reject that design, if we usurp that design, if we usurp that, those God-given roles, then here's what happens. The peace of the church and the peace of the home is disrupted. Um, if women try to lead the church, the, the peace of the church is going to be disturbed. And, and if women try to behave as though they are the head of the household, like the Bible says, uh, the opposite of, then there's going to be disturbance in the home too. And so that seems to be the point that Paul is making. And I think that we should probably admit not only is this a coherent reading of what Paul says, but it helps to serve the point Paul's trying to make. This is less of sort of a random side thought that Paul makes, and it's more fundamental to the whole argument, right? When we reject God's order, when we regard men and when we when, with regard to men and women, or when we confuse the roles of men and women, you have an overturning not just of the church, but also of the home and really of the created order. And so instead, Paul says, God's role of the sexes is by design, they're meant to be distinct in their value, but e or distinct in their roles, but equal in their value. That's what Paul's saying. So men and women, I'm going to use a million dollar word here, they are ontologically equal. They, they, by design, that means by design, we are genuinely of the same value in God's eyes. Uh, men are not better. Men are not superior. They're not more important. They're not more significant than women. And women are not more important or better in any sense than men. Instead, we have different roles. The roles differ. The value doesn't. <clears throat> um, 
The man's the head of the wife, according to Paul in Ephesians 5. And yet here's something so significant, and I really want you to hear it, especially want the women to hear it. I, I moved toward this earlier, and I want to just really put an exclamation point on it. The woman does not draw her value or purpose from the man. She has intrinsic value, whether she is married or whether she is single, whether she has children or whether she has no children. And and all of this still means that her purpose is not the same as her husband's purpose. She cares for children. She lives under his headship, even as he loves her and gives himself for her, just as Christ gave himself for his church. Does this mean that women can't work outside the home, that it's turning over the created order for a woman to work outside the home? No, I don't think Paul is saying that. Uh, Paul's point is not that women only belong barefoot in the kitchen pregnant, right? That's, I mean, that's the old cliche. That's not what Paul's saying, right? If the godly woman in Proverbs 31 is an industrialist who sells her goods in the city gates, then it seems to me that a, a godly woman is someone who works hard and applies her hand at all she does. That's the sort of woman that is ideal, the ideal woman. The point that Paul is is making is not that women shouldn't work outside the home. It's that they shouldn't overturn their roles in the home or in the church. I do think that this difficult phrasing of what Paul says here in verse 15 should not dominate how we read this passage. I don't want us to leave here just thinking, man, it's still really weird that Paul said that. Because, Because Paul says something else that's far more significant and not as difficult to appreciate. He says this. He says, She will be saved if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's this additional calling here. In fact, we should see this as an even higher calling than childbearing. You know, childbearing is really a shorthand for embracing the role of, of being a woman, right? The role of an equal with a deeply important role in the church and family. But here is the truth. Not all women have children. And not all women can have children. And yet what he says here is larger than that. Even if you have no children at all, this verse applies to any and all Christian women who embrace who God has designed them to be. And the calling then is greater. It is a greater calling. It isn't a calling primarily to make lots and lots of babies. It's really a calling to be daughters of God. The call goes out to all women, put your faith in Jesus. Demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of love and holiness, the fruits of self-control, the, the evidence that you know God has done something deep in your own soul and in your own heart. That's the call that God gives to women everywhere, children or no children. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you designed us. You made us. You created us male and female. You made us different from one another, even as you made us to fit alongside of one another. Would you help us, Lord, to appreciate and love your design for us? If there is some part of us that resists your revealed will or that grumbles against what you say to us, would you give us heart change? Would you use your revealed will to bring unity to your church, both here in this congregation, O oh God, and in our nation and around the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.